there we go. All right. Cool. So how's it going, Dan? It's going well. How about yourself, Adam? Pretty good. I'm uh, going to have to go in about an hour, an hour 10, because I got to take my cat to the vet. We just got her uh, a couple weeks ago, and she's got a cold, so. Oh. <laughs> so that's what's going on with me, but. Sounds good. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to talk about your book. I got to say, I got to say, I really, uh, I flew through it. I was, it was just one of those things where it was like a sit down and read 100 pages straight kind of thing. It was totally oh, a page turner. Great. Glad to enjoy um, it. Found it readable. Really? Yeah, no, it was totally readable. It was very good. Um, so I, my, I guess my main question is, uh, to start off with is there's kinds of, there seems like there's essentially kind of two themes you're playing off of each other in the book, which is kind of on the one hand, uh, the political movement in the sixties and, and the new left and the kind of push towards, um, communes and, and overthrowing the U S government and the various tendencies within the new left. But then you're also playing that off against, just rural living and life in the country and something much more um, traditional, I suppose. And I found that interplay really interesting, but I just wanted to know what your thoughts were in putting those two things against each other. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I saw them in clear juxtaposition with each other. I think that there was at that point in the 60s a kind of uh, confluence between the back to the land movement and the anti-war movement and the sort of general, what we called the movement back then, the left, uh, which consisted of, you know, anti-war protesters and uh, black liberationists and sort of early feminists. And it was all sort of seen as part of an overall struggle that we called the movement. And I, I sort of have a great deal of, uh, I, I wouldn't call it nostalgia, but I have a longing for those days when when the left was not as splintered and where there was a much greater sense of unity, though of course there were divisions that were bubbling under the surface all along and they ultimately did explode when some of the more sectarian elements of the left uh, you know, tried to impose their vision on the rest of the left and that sort of blew things up. Uh, but there was, at the same time, I think, you know, the new left uh, had a very different vision than the old left of how social change would take place. And it was much more all-encompassing. It wasn't simply through, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, but really through a more anarchistic kind of social revolutionary vision. And communes were a big part of that. We thought, you know, we not only need to change the structures of society, but we need to change ourselves as well. And we need to change our the way that we relate to each other. And we need to create a communal economics that's not simply a state's organized socialism, but something that uh, is reflected in our lives and our lifestyles and all of that. So, so and, and moving to the country was a big part of that. And actually here in Vermont, uh, there were a whole, a pretty significant number of communes that came directly out of the new left. Uh, and people had visions very similar to what I 
try to explore in the book, the idea that moving to the country was an opportunity to reassess our lives. It was an opportunity to build new relationships with others. It was an opportunity to support the larger movement in ways other than just attending protests or, uh, you know, writing position papers. It was to really sort of incorporate all of those changes into our own lives and to create a base for resistance in rural areas as well as urban areas to spread the ideas, to have a sort of strategic role in in providing material assistance to some of the struggles going on in the cities uh, by growing food and and offering a, a place for of respite for activists who were feeling burned out, all of that. There were a bunch of those communes. There was the uh, Total Loss Farm, one of the most famous ones that was started by Ray Mungo and a group of his fellow liberation news service folks who sort of took the press and and uh, ran away with it when liberation news service was uh, about to be taken over by more sectarian marxist leninists there was the uh, the red clover collective here in vermont which was made up of people from newsweek newsreel third world newsreel and newsreel uh, radical filmmakers who brought their vision to Vermont. There was a right right in my town, a, a commune called New Hamburger, which was started by a bunch of former SDSers or existing SDSers. Uh, so, so, you know, the book is really rooted in that history. And I think on another level, though, the, the move to the country really was also a lot about uh, people finding a way to sort of step back from what was going on and to reassess it and to reassess their lives and then look for other ways to plug in that might be more personally fulfilling as without abandoning the movement. So uh, it was an interesting period. And I, I think for a lot of us, the, the, both the move to more rural areas and the continued involvement with the movement were seen as part of the same struggle. Not really mm -hmm. in conflict. Yeah. I know. I mean, and it, and it happens over the course of the book that in the course of this kind of communal experiment, um, obviously things break down and, and quite a few uh, communes in the 60s did break down. Um, and this is something I get reminded of every time I ask people who are there is they tend to be pretty quick to remind me that, yeah, there was a, quite a lot of failures that that did happen. Um, how do you go about diagnosing that? What do you think went wrong in many of those cases? What do you think could have been done better? Um, do you feel like this is it's a core flaw or is something that was specific to that moment? Uh, well, I, I would contest the idea that uh, the communal experiments were sort of universally a failure because uh, many of them persisted. We're in Vermont, yeah. for example, that new hamburger commune that I mentioned still exists. Uh, the commune that I lived on still exists, but they're no longer really communes in the same sense. It's not a big communal household. It's rather a community where people established their own private households, started their own families, but still held certain values in common and carried out certain kinds of activities in common. Uh, undoubtedly, there was a very high failure rate, though. And I, I think the average lifespan of a commune, at least here in Vermont, was two or three years. And then they would tend to sort of fall apart. And it had a lot to do with 
you know, the stresses and strains of rural living and earning a livelihood in the country. It had a lot to do with interpersonal relations. That's probably the primary cause for the breaks up, breakups. You know, when you're living in one house together on top of each other, uh, people get on each other's nerves. We don't always treat each other with kindness. And it creates uh, some tensions and some pressures that are hard to resist. And a lot of it, which I tried to depict in the book as well, too, was finding a balance between being an open kind of community, welcoming people, transients, people who came for short periods of time or came to explore whether it was for them or not. Uh, and, uh, and people who had a more permanent commitment. So that was another point of tension, I think, was finding a balance between maintaining that core community and still being open to others and finding ways to incorporate other people into those structures. Uh, very challenging and, and difficult. Uh, but, you know, that communal impulse has been with people for, uh, so far as I can tell, for the whole of human history. And the communes of the 60s were just one expression of that. And, you know, if you look at the right. history of America, you go back to the 1830s. Uh, that was a period when something like 20% of the U.S., or I'm sorry, 5%, one twentieth of the U.S. population was actually living in intentional communities. Wow. Uh, yeah. So so it, it's it's been an ongoing kind of theme. And I think that you know, one of the things that makes it difficult is that, at least here in the U.S., our culture is one that really inculcates us with individualism from very early on. We're not we're not taught how to behave communally. We're not given the opportunity to learn the skills necessary for living together in those ways uh, or for functioning democratically. And it's interesting that historically, at least, uh, you know, what we've often seen with communes is that there's sort of a charismatic leader who creates that momentum and holds the group together. And then uh, either they become corrupted by holding up a, a position of authority or they die. And then, you know, once that that kind of uh, central leadership is gone, those kinds of communes tend to fall apart. We were trying to do something different, something that was really democratic and more anarchistic. And that brought a whole set of challenges with it as well. Uh, you know, it was sort of a do your own thing ethos. And, and a lot of what went on in the communes that I observed was an ethos of, you know, what's uh, yours is mine and what's mine is mine. <laughs> that, kind of self, that kind of selfishness, really, which I think also yeah. is actually a, a hallmark of our, our society and something that's uh, people are socialized into. I don't think it's inherent. I think if you look at the whole of human history, I can tell you as an anthropologist, we see that uh, you know communal forms of existence have been the main form of existence for at least the whole of the history of Homo sapiens sapiens that I'm aware of. It's you know there's the old anthropological saw that uh, if we look at the whole of history as a as a clock, it's really only in the last five minutes or so of that 12-hour clock that the kind of individualistic uh, society that we see as an expression of nature somehow came into being. And before that, uh, people really 
were f almost forced by circumstance to rely on each other and to practice mutual aid and to put forward the kinds of relationships and the kinds of ethos that we tried to embody in the communes in the 60s. One of the things I was thinking when I was reading the book was uh, simultaneous to when I was reading your book, I was also reading uh, Aristotle's politics in my book club. And uh, one of the things he talks about in that is how there's sort of a different, every different kind of political system will entail a different kind of citizen who will be the sort of person who will live in that system. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's one of those things is, you know, we of course have this idea here that capitalism and the nation state are somehow expressions of human nature. We've kind of naturalized these ideas. And so as a result, when we try something different, we, uh, I think the common observation is that, well, this just isn't natural. But of course the problem is you're taking people who have become accustomed to and been raised in and acculturated with a very specific idea of what a political system or an organic community should look like and they try something different and it's just there's a completely different set of ethical norms and values that go along with that political system mm -hmm. and the ones that work are the ones that can can recognize that and adjust to that yeah i think that's very true you know socialization plays such a huge role in the kind of personality that develops and you know you look at what our culture values and what it reinforces and it, it's reflected in everything from the structure of the nuclear family to the you know industrial system that we live in and it's one that really sees competition and acquisition as positive and reinforces and rewards those things whereas in previous cultures you know if you were acquisitive if you were greedy if you were like a donald trump you would be seen as demonic and you'd be yeah. banished you wouldn't be celebrated so uh and and it's important to recognize that because yeah. if we accept this notion of a narrowly defined human nature which is perfectly reflected in the structures of hierarchical structures of capitalism uh, then there's really it be the revolutionary project, at least as I envision, it becomes hopeless. But if we understand that those traits are really not inherent in our, our being, I'm not saying they're not there. Of course, other cultures also had people who, ex who displayed those traits, but instead of celebrating and rewarding them, they were, uh, they were disapproved of. And, and instead, things like nurturing and sharing and caring were the traits that were emphasized and were re rewarded. So that gives me hope, recognizing that understanding that we're not doomed to this violent, acquisitive, hierarchical kind of society that we live in today, and that there are numerous, numerous uh, historic examples and prehistoric examples that show that humanity has a much broader potential one of um one of the really crucial aspects to these kinds of communities i feel is well so one of the things that i really appreciated about um your contribution um particularly at the conference we we were at together was you were kind of placing this emphasis on on the importance of thinking about and talking about what we believe and why we believe it. And this is kind of something that uh, 
you know, I, obviously I'm a pretty bookish, theoretically oriented person. And, and I, mostly that's just because I'm a nerd. But um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, you run into this point where people will think like, well, you're just talking and talking. Like, the, is, what, what is the point of this? Just talking and goes, is going around in circles. But to a certain extent, the talking is the point. The fact that we can create a culture in which we can talk about things and think about things and recognize our disagreements and come to agreements about them and and that we really are thinking about it. We really are considering the other person's position, that sort of thing. That seems to me like it really is a part of that democratic culture that like we are aiming towards a society in which people can do that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it's crucial. And and really, if you're not discussing things, if you're not analyzing everything, including your own actions, uh, it's very difficult, I think, to really grapple with any of these crises that we're facing. Action is vitally important, but it has to be informed by thought. It has to be informed by an analysis. Otherwise, you know, you just end up chasing your own tail or unfortunately sometimes going in the opposite direction that you need to go. So there has to be a real dialectic between thinking and action. There has to be a praxis. There has to be, our project has to be, be really based in very constant analysis and critique and coming to new understandings and developing new ideas and approaches and then applying them in action and seeing how they work and coming back and re-examining them. And that only happens when you have a climate that allows for the kind of discussion and, and debate and free exchange of ideas that I think in many ways we did try to exemplify at the uh, building eco-socialism from below gathering. And with some success, I mean, for me, it was really interesting because there were uh, lots of people there who I had disagreements with. Uh, yeah. But but we were able to find a common ground. And I think, you know, I, I would imagine in future gatherings, some of those disagreements may be highlighted more. But there was a willingness to be open to hearing other people's ideas, other people's approaches. And without that kind of exchange, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I was really impressed by the degree of openness to hearing other people's perspectives and having having really genuine good faith debates about these things that I saw there. Um, and maybe in contrast to that, uh, earlier you mentioned, and it's featured heavily in the book, kind of the breakdown of the new left and the SDS. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, would you, would you mind talking a little bit about that from your perspective, what your experience with that was? Sure. Now, I, you know, I was very young when that all went on. I actually got involved yeah. in Yes, when I was in high school, I think we had one of the very few, if not maybe the only uh, high school SDS chapter in the country at that point. And SDS was the major student organization and the major anti-war organization of the time. And of course, SDSers were also involved deeply in the civil rights movement and, you know, things like Freedom Summer in Mississippi, registering black voters, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really developed a very different vision of socialism than that of the old left, thus the, the name the new left, obviously. But it was one which was really based on uh, what we called back then participatory democracy, but what we would call today direct democracy or 
you know, taking the form of libertarian municipalism and social ecology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it was really in contrast to the kind of hierarchical party-oriented stance of the previous left, of the old left, and the kind of exclusive emphasis on organizing workers there. It was a much, we had a much broader vision for who constituted the constituency for a revolutionary movement. And we had a vision that uh, demanded that people actively take part in making those decisions. And we tried to create structures. So in SDS, I have to say there were still vestiges of hierarchy. You know, we had a, we had uh, national officers and regional travelers and and there was a, a bit of a, a hierarchy there but it was really much more geared towards the kind of participation and directly democratic decision making that we see reflected in movements today and that's really where that transition occurred um so i was quite young the college that i attended had an active sds chapter that i became involved with and at that point the uh by 1968, uh, lots of tensions had emerged both in the anti-war movement and in SDS uh, with a resurgence of sort of doctrinaire, sectarian Marxism that took the form of a variety. You know, there was the Progressive Labor Party and the SWP, which had been sort of resurrected out of the wreckage of the 30s. Uh, there were Maoists, there were Marxist-Leninists. And given the open structure of SDS, it was actually very easy for them to infiltrate. And at the SDS convention in 1968, uh, the Progressive Labor Party brought in like 50 buses of their cadre to the national convention, and they were able to elect their delegate as the president of SDS, at which point a lot of the people who were not uh, sort of doctrinaire Marxists or Maoists or Leninists felt quite alienated, began to fall away. And then the next year, things just completely blew up and you had three different factions emerge. There was the, uh, the PLP, Progressive Labor Party group. There was what was called the Revolution Revolutionary Youth Movement One and Revolutionary Youth Movement Two which later became uh, the Weatherman faction. And my SDS chapter at the school college, small college I attended went overwhelmingly over to the Weatherman faction. So at that point, uh, you know, I was 18 or 19. And I was very susceptible to the, the right on rhetoric and the, you know, and the program seemed to make sense as I tried to, say in the book, you know, once you accepted sort of the internal logic of their analysis, uh, it all made sense. Yes, of course, you look around the world, you know, and this was a time of rampant third worldism, sort of looking to the third world as the revolutionary vanguard. And I think very naively, a lot of people thought that was a model that could be put into practice here. Uh, of course, it was a ridiculous idea. I mean, just examining the historical circumstances of third world revolutions all took place in peasant societies uh, which were not they were primarily struggles for national liberation they were struggles for decolonization that were uh you know fell under the sway of marxists and, and marxist parties 
took often usually took leadership in those struggles. Uh, so, you know, we really valorized that third world experience and felt that we could do the same thing. And, you know, look what Fidel did in Cuba. Look what Mao did in China. They started with a tiny handful of cadre in the mountains. And then they were able to create a national liberation army. And, you know, uh, and, and we thought that we could do the same. We thought America was ready to embrace that kind of revolutionary spirit. And it was naive, you know, certainly the 60s were a tumultuous time. There was a huge upsurge in activism, uh, largely because of the war, particularly among young people. Uh, it was somewhat self-serving because people were <laughs> in danger of being drafted into this war and being sent to Vietnam to die. Uh, but there was also a very principled opposition to the war as well. I wouldn't say it was all, you know, just based on self-interest. It wasn't. There was an internationalist feeling, a sense of solidarity. Uh, and I think that led, that kind of fascination with third world revolutionary movements led to a kind of delusion that it was something we could do here. We could create a guerrilla foco and we could disrupt the war machine and that the masses would flock to us, the disaffected masses. And, and we'd have a revolutionary force that could march on Washington and, you know, make the state collapse. And uh, as I said, I think quite naive and, and wrong. It, it was really a, a form of adventurism. And I think it was particularly attractive to young people because when you're young, you have that sense that you can do anything. And, and you know, we were, we were extremely arrogant. Uh, we thought we had all the answers so far as we could see our parents' generation had fucked everything up, and they had, uh, and we knew better, and we could make it better. Well, we did know better, but we didn't know how to make it better, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. and I, now, think it, I, think, I think it was around when some of this stuff, particularly the breakup of SDS was happening in, in, in your book that you actually dropped in a reference to Listen Marxist. Yeah, I by did. Murray Bookchin. Yeah, uh, uh, did that play any kind of a role in your thinking at the time, or was this? Oh yeah, come later. I mean, I, I read it at the time, and uh, I dismissed it because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was caught up in exactly what he was critiquing. We were yeah. the vanguard. We were going to lead the revolution. We knew what was going to happen. We were right. Everybody else was wrong. Uh, it wasn't until a couple years later. Uh, that I really came to appreciate Bookchin's work around, yeah, I'd say 1970 I was when I read uh, Ecology and Revolutionary Thought, and that had a huge impact on me. And also after the, uh, the disillusionment that I felt with SDS and the weatherman tendency, uh, I began to identify myself more as an anarchist. I, I, read, I think the first thing I read was Emma Goldman's autobiography, and that really turned me on to anarchism and then, you know, all the classic Kropotkin and Bakunin. And then uh, when I encountered Bookchin a, a second time, a light bulb sort of went off and it was like, yeah, you know, I've, this is what I've been thinking, but I could never really articulate it. And he's laid it all out and it made perfect sense. So, that was a, a revelatory moment for me, really. Yeah, I, I can definitely uh, relate to that that experience. 
Um, I think a lot of people have kind of been going down that track from over the course of the last couple of years, maybe for me more so as a coming out of the two Bernie campaigns, which I think radicalized a lot of people and then, and then forced a lot of people to come to some conclusion about what sort of form of radicalism actually makes sense for the world we're living in now. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess one other thing I want to talk about a bit is uh, you also had some experience with uh, Puerto Rican immigrants in the Lower East Side, Los Ida. Yeah, yeah. And you've written some pretty interesting stuff just about uh, alternative visions for cities and and city life. Um, And I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Uh, if you want to talk about your experience there, and maybe that connects a bit to, I know that that was through the Institute for Social Ecology. So, yeah, yeah, that's how uh, I first encountered the movement on lower on the Lower East Side in Lower East Side, and it was, uh, yeah, primarily a Puerto Rican movement that was very concerned with ecological issues in their neighborhood, and they had begun a process of physically transforming the neighborhood through their own efforts. Uh, early movement was called sweat equity urban homesteading, where people went into city-owned abandoned property as squatters and then began the rehabilitation of those buildings using their own labor, thus sweat, as equity. And in the course of that, they wanted to create more sustainable situation for themselves and at that point the institute which i was co-founder of uh, was doing a lot of work with alternative technologies what we called them back then solar energy and wind power primarily and aquaculture and organic farming and gardening for food production and they actually contacted us Uh, they knew of our work and asked if we could provide some technical assistance So uh, we started working with them. And I was living in New York at that time. I was in grad school. And I became very involved with the movement and fascinated by them and worked with them for about 12 years. Ended up writing my doctoral dissertation about what was going on down there. Uh, It was called uh, Milagro de Loisida. Grassroots Efforts at Neighborhood Reconstruction on New York's Lower East Side. And I was really inspired by the movement, inspired by what people were doing, by the vision that they had for the neighborhood, by the diversity and the inclusiveness of the movement. It was really one of the very few sort of multiracial movements uh, that I ever experienced, where people really had a strong sense of solidarity and connection, mutual aid. Uh, so we started doing a labor exchange with the Lower East Side. And we'd bring brigades of students down there to help with their projects, whether it was clearing out a vacant lot to create a community garden or helping with the construction of the low-income tenants cooperatives that they were creating in the squatted buildings. And they would send uh, groups up to work with us to help us with our gardening and farming and construction. One of the groups I worked very closely with was a group called Charas. And they had actually uh, encountered Buckminster Fuller back in the 60s, and he had taught them how to build geodesic domes. So they came up and helped us build a couple of domes 
was really fascinating. And the movement really had a holistic ecological vision for their neighborhood, and they tried to implement that. They created town meetings. They held quarterly town meetings. This is a neighborhood of 30,000 people. It was really, a, at that time, Lower East, Lower East Side, a section of the Lower East Side was a, it was a ghetto. It's 40% uh, city-owned property, abandoned buildings, and rubble-strewn vacant lots. And people took on the physical reconstruction of that neighborhood and and did a, a marvelous job as as well in creating a people's planning mechanism you know the city had an official community planning board at that point it was consistent mostly of business owners and wealthier people in the neighborhood it was appointed it wasn't elected at that point and people in the neighborhood created their own alternative planning organization called the Lower East Side Planning Council. And at these town meetings would literally go building by building, block by block, and create a plan for the neighborhood. You know, this building is going to be uh, elderly housing. This vacant lot is going to be a basketball court for the kids. This vacant lot is going to be a community garden. This building's going to be artist housing. This is going to be, uh, you know, all low-income tenant cooperatives. And they were able to use, uh, bring political pressure on the city, ultimately to start to fund some of these projects. They, Lower East Side has always been a socialist neighborhood in New York, and they had a very strong socialist city council member who advocated for them. They were able to uh, identify sympathetic people within the city bureaucracy, the housing bureaucracy, who could help them and help them leverage funds. So it was a real grassroots effort that had great success. We put solar collectors up on the roofs of some of the sweat equity homestead buildings. They were actually the first urban application of solar energy in the United States since the 1920s or something. We put a windmill up on one of the buildings actually and it was the first uh, urban windmill and it was funny because con edison which is the new york city utility uh said oh no you you know we were feeding the power back into the grid through an inverter and getting credit for it. they oh you can't do that you're going to blow out our grid you know with a little 1800 Watt windmill. So uh, Lowy Saito, the 11th Street movement, ended up taking Con Ed to court, and the New York State Supreme Court ruled in favor of uh, 519 East 11th Street that the Con Ed had to accept, had to buy power from them. And that court decision was actually the legal precedent for the whole independent power industry in the United States today which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, that's not what we envisioned. Uh, you know, for us, the appeal of energy sources like solar energy and wind power was that they could be decentralized. At that point, the technology was not that complex of the stuff that people could really understand, could build themselves, uh, that communities could own and control. And that was what we saw as, you know, besides the obvious ecological benefits of renewable energy. Uh, that was the most exciting aspect of, of it as far as we were concerned. And unfortunately, I mean, it's a good thing now, of course, that uh, not without controversy and problems, but, you know, that we're moving towards alternative energy, 
to combat global warming. But uh, our feeling was, and, and my feeling still is, that there is a much greater potential for these technologies to be deployed in different ways that could enhance community ownership and control and rather than building huge centralized power production facilities that we could decentralize and use a mosaic of different alternatives to actually power our communities. So we were doing a lot of that work in Lowy Saida. Uh, one of our students introduced the first organic gardens there. The community gardens in, on the Lower East Side became world famous. Uh, and of course, ultimately, uh, most of that work was forced to be put on hold when the neighborhood, in part ironically, because of the success of the movement there, became attractive and gentrification began in earnest. Landlords paid their taxes, reclaimed their buildings. When Rudy Giuliani was elected, it was sort of the death knell. He came in and he said the era of socialism is over on the Lower East Side. People had been able to purchase the abandoned buildings that they squatted in, uh, you know, for nominal fees for a hundred dollars a unit or a thousand dollars for a building Giuliani said no it's all going on the auction market the real estate developers started circling and all of the energy of the movement had to really shift into trying to fight gentrification and of course in new york city we know that uh, finance and real estate are what really controlled the city so once the lower east side became a hot real estate market uh, the movement was doomed uh, you know, you can't, uh, what did Lenin said, you can't have socialism in just one country. Well, you can't have socialism in one neighborhood either, unfortunately. Uh, which is not to say that a lot of those projects haven't continued. He did bulldoze yeah. a lot of the gardens and sell off all of the remaining empty buildings. But, uh, you know, we had managed to create 40 low-income tenants cooperatives and dozens and dozens of gardens, and some of those still exist. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, especially you kind of answered what I was going to ask next, which was just being on kind of the ground floor of the implementation of alternative energy, which at that time was completely wrapped up in this idea of decentralization and direct democracy. It must yeah. have been truly bizarre to see this slowly become a you know multi-billion-dollar industry that that has now almost become kind of the capitalism's last saving grace idea yeah. that we're going to we're going to save the machine through this this rapid transition without incorporating any of the politics that went along with that or the the philosophy or the attitude towards the natural world yeah yeah uh, very ironic and you know distressing because the potential was there the potential is still there I believe, uh, but the, given the trajectory of our society and the adaptability of capitalism, it, uh, it's going in a very different direction. And it's, yeah, it's kind of painful to see. And, you know, you can think wistfully what could have been, what should have been. But, um, and, you know, I still, I mean, I remain hopeful that uh, we may still see the kinds of changes that that we had hoped for and envisioned and worked towards come about. Uh, but I, I would emphasize how adaptable capitalism has turned out to be. I mean, it survived so many crises. Uh, I think ultimately though, the, the ecological imperative really is 
something that capitalism can't solve. Uh, you know, some of the forces unleashed by capitalism are going to be crucial, and I, I believe in dealing with the problems, the kinds of you know technological uh, expertise and abilities that have developed under capitalism are going to have to be harnessed and used to create a new society. But the political and social structures that inform it need to be radically altered. Uh, and it's it's a daunting task. It's yeah. No what do you what do you see as the I, I imagine it, from what I've heard, and I talked to Blair Taylor about this a little bit, it sounds like the Institute for Social Ecology has seen a little bit of a renaissance in the last couple of years. Um, do you what do you see as the prospects for a kind of new communalist movement yeah. where we are now? Well, I'm encouraged. I think, yeah, it's true that for a number of years, you know, I we kept going and doing the work, but uh, you know it would seem to be to a largely uh, aging audience. We'd have gatherings. I'd look around the room; it would be a sea of gray hairs. But I think uh, a couple of developments really began to spark interest among younger people in social ecology. The first was the Zapatista uprising, which seemed to embody a lot of the ideals that we had been talking about for many, many years. And that we saw an upsurge of interest then. And then, of course, the, the Rojava revolution, the Kurdish movement, which very consciously modeled itself on Bookchin's philosophy, uh, had a tremendous impact on young people. And people started really sort of flocking to the ISC. And I think we've made a very conscious effort to try to incorporate more young people into our uh, on our board and into our faculty and to make sure that people understand both the historic development of the ideas, but also their relevance to what's going on today. And I think they're more relevant than ever. And I think it's also interesting because the whole uh, movement has sort of shifted away from that more hierarchical uh, form embodied by the old left. You know, even the anti-war movement in the 60s was still quite hierarchical and white male dominated and uh, still very much locked into a lot of those old models of leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And we saw really beginning with the anti-nuclear movement in the 1970s a shift away from that to the point where I think it's largely inconceivable of social movements today to think of themselves in those old hierarchically structured terms and that instead the new norm has become the idea of uh, decentralized directly democratic forums for decision making and it's been incorporated into all of the movements that have come since the anti-nuclear movement really the anti-globalization movement occupy wall street eco-feminism the ecology movement itself they've all all mass movements today pretty much operate on a much more democratic basis and it's something that we advocated for for many years and it's been gratifying to see that emerge yeah um no it's definitely a massive shift and it's certainly what kind of drove me toward the left my first exposure to the left really was occupy wall street and 
you know, so it's always been something I, I always tell people my first ever camping trip was Occupy Boston. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I ever slept in or ever put a tent up somewhere that wasn't my, my grandma's backyard. Uh, <laughs> um, well, so I guess, I mean, I'll, I'll let you go soon. I wanted to ask one other question, which was just it, to go a little bit off of what you recently said, just you've seen the left go through so many forms over the years um, and see so many changes. Are there, is there anything you see happening in the left currently that really disturbs you or that you really want to warn about or no. just anything? Yeah. What, yeah. what are your thoughts? I, I think the left has become, uh, unfortunately, very siloed. That we see, um, you know, a lot of a lot of movements based purely on identity. Uh, people seem to seem to be drawing rigid lines between issues. And one of the things that I think was wonderful and important about the movement in the '60s was that it was seen as a multi-issue. Uh, movement, you know, ultimately, I think if we're talking about any kind of revolutionary movement, it has to be multi-issue and we have to tear down those silos and we have to find ways to understand the, I, I know people today talk about intersectionality. Well, in fact, you know, if we're to achieve any kind of revolutionary momentum, we have to be completely intersectional. We have to recognize that the same forces that are oppressing black people today are oppressing workers and are oppressing women and are oppressing gay people and trans people. And we have to recognize our common interest and come together and create a much broader movement, which was one of the things that I found really heartening about our little eco -social, building eco-socialism from below event was it was one of the few recent uh, events that I've seen where those all of those various strands of the movement were able to come together and recognize common enemies and and begin at least to discuss forging some common strategies. So I think we need to do a lot more of that and tear down those silos and move away from identity politics to a much broader conception of the kind of changes that need to occur, which need to be inclusive and holistic and uh, thoroughgoing. It's not just a question of reforming things and passing laws that uh, you know will make it illegal to discriminate against this group or that group, but there has to be a, a total restructuring of society that recognizes the interrelationship of those problems and recognizes as well the imperative to deal with the ecological question. That has to be foremost if there to be a future at all for us so yeah I, uh, that, that is a that is a part of i know from just looking at interviews with with murray and and that sort of thing that that was always kind of a hobby horse of his to talk about the the dangers of identity politics and it's a part of his legacy that doesn't really get brought up that that often anymore but yeah. it was something he was clearly aware of yeah um, and that's not to say that identity is not vitally important, but Absolutely. In, but in social ecology, you know, we have one of the, the key principles is the notion of unity and diversity. And yep. I think it has to be kind of a rallying cry for us. Yes, you know, let's recognize identities and their importance and let's celebrate that diversity, but at the same time, let's also recognize the need to have 
a, a unified vision for how social change can occur and and create a society in which we don't just tolerate diversity, but we do celebrate it and we embody it in all of our institutions and relationships and create a universal fellowship of man, you know, the old man, men and women, of course, the old uh, really motivating uh, underlying notion of that socialism always put forward. Yeah. Well, hey, Dan, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for, uh, for, for giving me the opportunity. Thanks so much for all the work you've done over the years, and thanks for your book. Well, thanks, Adam. It was great talking to you, and I hope I'll see you again soon somewhere. Yeah, definitely. Right. Keep in Good. touch. You take care. Bye. Take care. Bye.